Hey guys, Red Hills Rancher here with a special bonus episode. And I'm sitting down with a lady that contacted me on Instagram and reached out and wanted to talk to me about some of my experiences about wildfire. So I'm kind of excited for this conversation. So uh, Ms. Domo Woodham, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Domo Woodham. I work for Montana State University Extension and I'm a natural resources extension agent with a specialty in wildfire education. And so most of what I'm doing is talking with people about how they can prepare for, respond to, and recover from wildfire. Awesome, awesome. So you had some questions for me, um, and I guess I can roll right into those, because uh, you're <laughs> sure. supposed to be interviewing me. Um, yes, and so, you know, maybe you want me to share a little bit of background about the project, about how it all came to be, and, um, We'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, so, that'd be great. Awesome. So my position in extension uh, was pretty unique because it was 100% grant funded. And so I had grants that funded me when I first came into the job. And then I looked for others and kind of have used creativity and experiences to kind of branch out what I do. So um, back in 2018, um, I was working with some partners of mine from the Northern Plains Climate Hub. And we kind of did a, a grant proposal pitch competition, more or less. And I pitched this idea that I wanted to do an agricultural producer discussion panel where people would share their wildfire lessons learned so that other people could learn um, from their experiences. And that proposal got selected for a small bit of funding. And so what we did was at the 2018 Wyoming Stock Growers Winter Roundup, we hosted this discussion panel and we had um, two ranchers that were on the panel as well as uh, NRCS specialists and USDA Forest Service specialists that had worked with these two particular producers um, during their wildfire experience. And initially uh, we had, I think an hour of time blocked out for the discussion. And I had about 25 questions that I had prepared that I was gonna ask people and the audience took over. <laughs> People loved it. They, um, our discussion panel went on for two hours and I only made it through maybe three of my questions before folks from the audience were raising their hands and, you know, either asking specific questions to individual people or posing them to the group. And a couple things were realized um, while doing that was people love that. Um, people love learning from their peers. They love learning from experiences that tangible stuff that you can apply to your own life. Um, people absolutely love that. And it's way more, um, I guess, receptive to people rather than, you know, maybe having a specialist or someone maybe from a university saying like, you should do this and this based on this research. People wanna see the direct on the ground experience and what happened and that's so invaluable. And so um, as a result of the discussion panel, we made a couple of really nice uh, posters that had select quotes from each of those people and you know we distributed those and they were really cool but that kind of always stuck with me was how how can we go bigger with this how can we reach more people because um the other thing i'd learned over the years was i worked in fire management for 12 and a half years before extension and um every time there's a wildfire there's a couple things that happen um folks will act like it's the first time there's ever been a wildfire that's impacted them and that's not the case typically you know, this happens over and over all over the country. And so because we, it happens over and over all over the country, we tend to have other areas. memories as human beings for things oh, like that. 
Yes. And so, and that was the thing was, you know, how can, yes. how can I bring everyone's stories and experiences together? So um, last year I got a small grant or I guess it was a sub contract from the Montana DNRC um, to do wildfire lessons learned for agriculture and rural communities. And with that project, um, I've both been traveling around Montana mainly, uh, doing interviews via email, phone call, podcast, <laughs> and um, talking to people and learning what what's their wildfire story. And it could have been anything. It could have been how they prepared for wildfire, how they responded, um, how they recovered or didn't recover. And then what did they learn? And if they could do it over or if they could share any juicy nuggets of advice, well, what would it be? And that has been a blast. Um, I've talked with folks in Montana, Wyoming, Washington, Colorado, and uh, now Kansas. And so um, wildfire is something that's near and dear to me as is agriculture. And so I just, I'm, I'm really happy to be able to bring everything together. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That gives me a little, that gives me a lot more context. And it also gave me a, gave me a little bit of time to make some notes here. Um, so I'm Brian Alexander. Um, most folks, a lot of folks will know me as Red Hills Rancher on social media and be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, where I'm most active. Um, where I live, I'm in South Central Kansas in the Red Hills. Um, my, my management context is we get about 24 inches of rain, 22 to 24 inches of rain um, in a normal average year. And normal is just a setting on a dryer and we never get that. Um, and it's never evenly distributed between um, growing season and, and dormant season. And there's a lot of variability in our humidity um, as well. We can have cool, cool, humid summers. We can have warm, dry summers. We can have warm, humid summers. We can have cool, you know, we, we can have almost any variation of weather here. So it, it does make uh, for, for a challenge to manage in. Um, so my occupation is I'm a, I'm a full-time rancher. Um, I am a uh, ecological engineer or a grazing engineer. I fix land problems with livestock, or at least that's how I've been trying to brand myself for years. Um, I've been through ranching for profit several times. Um, and I've also been through holistic management. Um, I was, I briefly considered being a uh, holistic management certified educator, but I think I'm being called and pulled in a different direction. So throughout my life and, you know, I've had it, I had an early exposure um, to a lot of these holistic concepts and, and ranching for profit principles. Whoop, wrong button. <laughs> uh, so the history of the ranch is it, it, like I said, it's 7,000 acres of, of native grassland. And there was about 500 acres of it that was farmed at one point and broken out. Um, that was, that's all been back to grass for 30 plus years. So the land um, that I currently am, am privileged enough to be the steward of uh, was originally started to be put together by my family as early as I can tell around 1906 when, when some of my first ancestors came to this area. And I can't really find out much about those early days, but I know in the 30s there were sheep on the ranch. Um, and possibly even up to the 50s. And then in the late 40s, uh, great-great-grandfather discovered oil. He kind of decided he was going to go be an oil man and didn't really care much about the ranch. And from about the mid-50s until uh, 1984, when my dad got control over it, the ranch was leased out and operated by others. Um, 
it wasn't well managed. So when dad took it over in 84, he described it as he's going to yell at me these days. <laughs> I, I don't always have this quote just exactly right, but uh, it was an overgrazed, underutilized cedar forest without any water. And he spent his, he spent his life learning how to manage the grass and, and even though the term really didn't exist at the time, um, begin the process of regeneration and restoring the native habitat of the ranch. Um, that's what he chose to do um, when, when he got control of the ranch, is he chose to spend any, any capital or startup money he had on improving the resource that he had rather than going out and, and buying cows, which is, is what a typical response would be. And because he didn't know anything about cows, but he knew he could do something with the land that he had and learn how to make it make money without needing to own cows. And that's, that's what ranching for profit taught him. So my experience with fire is... I will jump in here. And I just want, I want to say, I did, I heard you speak at the Grassfed Exchange uh, two years ago. And um, that's why I wanted to reach out to you because I remembered you talking and sharing about this wildfire. And that was one of those things like, hmm, you know, this is a great story to be able to share with a bigger audience rather than who's sitting in this room right now here in Sonoma. So I am so excited we get to hear this again. <laughs> and, you know, even two years down the line, you know, I've, I've been able to make, you know, some more observations and, you know, uh, hopefully we have time to get into that and I can share that with you later. Um, so my experience with fire, um, I'm 42 now. When I was eight, my dad handed me a drip torch and said, walk that way. So we've got a long history of, of being borderline pyromaniacs out here in the Red Hills. Um, so I have a very long history um, with prescribed fire. I also spent a little over eight years in the Navy. And while I was in the Navy, I was an engineer. And if you know anything about the Navy at all and shipboard life, if you're an engineer, you are also a firefighter, guaranteed. It, do, it doesn't matter what you, know, what you want to do as an engineer, you are a firefighter. And if you're on the ship, you're going to have to learn firefighting somehow. So um, I worked my way up and I qualified some fairly high levels of, um, of, of damage control. And eventually I was a part of the damage control training team, teaching, you know, teaching techniques and, and, and how to fight fires and control damage on a ship. So I brought a lot of that management experience back with me when I returned home in, in 2006. And I've kind of stepped into um, a leadership role with our prescribed burn association on our local burn group. Um, there's several people that, that approach me for advice and planning about how to execute their burn. And, uh, there's several people that kind of depend on me to be their burn boss on their property. So it's, it's, so let me ask you something Go, going back. So, um, I had similar experience, uh, where I grew up in Alaska, my family had, um, hay fields that we would burn every single spring. Uh, my grandpa and my uncle and myself, and we didn't use drip torches. We just did it old school with, you know, lighter and rakes and running around and um, I guess this is something I think back on because, you know, I, that's, that was my introduction to fire and prescribed burning in particular. With you, you know, running around with a drip torch at eight, when your dad would, would line you out, did he tell you why you guys were burning everything? Or was it kind of like, this is just something we do? Well, back in the early days, it was, you know, I always understood that it was a way to to get rid of the cedar trees. I understood from a really early age that that the eastern red cedar tree um, was a bad thing on the grasslands. And we can get into that later. I've got a ton of research and, you know, things we can talk about to, to show um, uh, grassland biome conversion to, to closed canopy juniper forest and 
the the researchers that are that are behind this project at University of Nebraska Lincoln are like they're within a hair's breadth of figuring out the economic impact of eastern red cedar tree encroachment on the Great Plains due to loss of forage production. So that that that's really cool. We can we can jump into that later. Um, I, I I rabbit trailed off. So what what was your question? What is your <laughs> Like when, when you guys, when you were young and you were. Oh, okay. The context fire. of fire. Right. Yeah. So I understood from a pretty early age that, you know, we had to burn to control the cedar trees. Now, I tell you what, if you've never seen a big stack of Eastern red cedar or other juniper go up in a giant ball of fire, that's just a, a column of black smoke, 10,000 feet high. I mean, literally 10,000 feet high and you can feel the heat a quarter of a mile away. And you know that you you know that you met that you know that you planned that you know you briefed the team and your guys did that according to your plan and you just get to sit back and watch this this massive beautiful act of regeneration and rejuvenation take place on the plains like that that is a great feeling <laughs> but we're not here to talk about prescribed fire you know <laughs> you're, you're talking about burning hayfields in Alaska every year and you know there's there's a lot to be said about um about contextually appropriate management and burning is just one of burning can be one of those tools in the manager's toolbox but the point i was kind of making is like you know when a lot of people think about fire and prescribed fire um a lot of people are familiar with it on a very small scale like you know burning a crp field or burning a hay field that may you know may have a road around it on all four sides and it's you know only 50 acres and you know you can pick kind of a nice calm evening and be done in two hours we don't have that luxury out here on the plains you know we need to burn uh, last year as a burn association in our area we burned about i think a little over 10,000 acres i i forgot to have that number handy um, and most of those were, were spring burns, which would be late dormant season. We did a few summer burns, um, and we can talk about, you know, timing of that later, but that's prescribed burning. We're not talking about that. <laughs> uh, so we figured that we need to be burning almost a hundred thousand acres within just within our associations umbrella area, so to speak, the, the area that we cover, we need to be doing 10 times the burning that we are. And we're one of the most active groups in the state. We are we're, we are the oldest burn association in the state. Like we founded the 501c3. I was a founding member of that. And then our local group, that group grew and we, we turned that over and that became the state prescribed burn association that has spawned, I can't even tell how many daughter chapters throughout the state. So fire culture and acceptance of fire culture and and knowing how to be a successful practitioner of prescribed fire and knowing when it's contextually appropriate to pull that tool out of your toolbox is wildfire prevention which wildfire is really what we want to talk about today right i i love talking about everything fire but yeah we'll get back on track <laughs> okay so the wildfire experience that i'd really like to share is um would be the anderson creek wildfire in 2016 so that's coming up you know, the five-year anniversary of that is coming up on two weeks. Um, and in fact, four four years ago, right now, um, I was in Las Vegas <laughs> and there was another fire burning within 40 miles of here called the Starbuck fire that was much bigger than Anderson Creek. I think Starbuck um, ended up being around 640,000 acres. 
um, but it's classified as a complex fire. Anderson Creek wildfire was a point source wildfire, and it burned, I think, I think the official revised number is somewhere around 343,000, okay? So the conditions leading up to, up to that, up to Anderson Creek in 2016 is, you know, there's some, there's some cattle market factors that are kind of involved that, you know, shorten up cattle numbers and put, you know, took grass out of production, you know, took some cattle off of grass. That was also kind of a, a, a wetter period in this area during the growing season. So we grew a tremendous amount of grass and not everybody, you know, not everybody, myself included, was effective at utilizing the grass that grew. So there was a lot of grass left over that just stayed around. And the winter of 2016 was exceptionally dry and it was fairly warm. I, I was working on a tree clearing project all winter <laughs> and I was within I was within probably three or four days of being done, wrapping it up, putting a bow on it and hauling my gear out back to the yard when Anderson Creek wildfire hit. So when that hit, I had, I had a lot of money wrapped up in my tree clearing operation, sitting out in the pasture and a fire went right through it. And like two tires on my trailer and one tire on an attachment. And that was it. Like the rest of my machinery was fine. So anyway, back to conditions leading up to that. So the winter of 2016 was exceptionally dry and it was, and it was fairly warm. So we, we had a lot of forage. We had a lot of fuel load, had a lot of what, you know, you know, those in a no call a fine fuel. We had a lot of fine fuel loading that was dry going into the end of March. Normally um, our green up is about here um, is typically 15 March is, is when we have enough cool season grass that, that it will actually start to kind of impede fire progress a little bit. Generally, that's, you know, when the spring humidity starts coming in and, you know, because as we all know, you, you know, humidity is a huge factor in fire. You know, as long as your humidity is above 20%, your risk of wildfire is, is fairly small unless your temperature is over 80 degrees, but we can get into the earth later. Um, so it was almost the perfect storm. And looking back, I can see this weather pattern repeated so many times in the late winter. You know, it's the polar vortex wind pattern. We're having it literally right now. We've got several days of really strong, hot, dry south winds. Then a front will come through and that will drive a rapid switch from the south to the northwest. And the really bad fires that we've had in this area, and there's been, there were bad fires in, in 2018 and in 2019. You know, I just, I don't have their names and names and figures off the top of my head. I remember where they were, but I... I've been studying the weather pattern and it's the same thing. You know, we'll get that red flag warning day, two or three days in advance. The national weather service has come fantastic about being able to get these red flag warnings out many days in advance in the last five years. They've just done come so far in being able to get the warning out, you know, when there's a red flag warning day. So it, it wasn't quite that quick in 2016. Now I think they almost give us an extra day, almost 36 hours, some more warning than they did five years ago. So it's, it's kind of improved that much. And that does help, you know, with a fire management context. So, you know, we had that really strong 25 mile an hour south wind that was hot and dry. And then we had the cold front come through that had no moisture behind it. And that it didn't drop the temperature very much, about 15 degrees. But what it did is it made the wind switch from the south at 20 to the northwest at 40 to 45. And it doesn't matter how badass of a firefighter you think you might be, you are not going to chase down and actively attack a grass fire burning in four to 6,000 pounds of, of 
dry fine fuel that's being pushed by 40 to 45 miles an hour wind. Sorry, buddy, you ain't doing it. <laughs> so the fire started way down in Oklahoma and it was Tuesday afternoon. And I remember, uh, I mean, I have such kind of a clear memory of that almost few days. Um, I remember it. I remember it starting. I mean, I, I kind of remember that day, you know, the things leading up to that day and knowing that the weather was going to be bad. And that Tuesday morning, uh, Vanderson Creek, I had, I just, I had a feeling of dread. I mean, just the wind and the humidity and the heat. And I just had a feeling, I just had a feeling. And my ranch is, is fairly high, like in elevation. Okay. Yeah. We're talking about Kansas. It, it's, it's flat compared to what most people are used to, but I do have 30% incline on my hills that are 200 feet high. So I've got stuff that's just as steep as a lot of stuff in, out in Colorado in the mountains. It's just not as big. And we live on top of it. We don't live down in the valleys because the valleys are too small. So my ranch is kind of up on top and I can see long ways to the west. I can see a long ways to the south, long ways to the north and a long ways to the east. And I've trained myself over the years on days like that. You keep, you keep an eye upwind, you know, and all of us, you know, there's several of us out here that, you know, on days like that, we kind of, you know, we don't go hide in the house like we normally would. We get out, we stay with our radios, we keep our phones charged and, and you keep your eyes you keep your eyes upwind and you keep your nose working and make sure you're not smelling anything weird because in 40 miles an hour wind, you don't see a smoke column. You might not see the smoke column until you are short, short minutes away from having that head fire on top of you. So hang on, let me, let me jump in here. Really okay. quick question. So um, this is one of the things that I, I've been uh, asking people from out of state. So here in Montana, um, you know, you can kind of divide, Montana, as far as Western Montana, Eastern Montana, everything east of the divide is pretty much Eastern Montana for all intents and purposes. We got open, open prairie, badlands, breaklands, everything, island mountain ranges, you name it. Um, also in Eastern Montana, it's fairly common where on farms and ranches, people either A, have their own private firefighting equipment, either on ATV, UTV, on the trucks. Um, also, there is like a co-op program with Montana DNRC where they kind of have fire engines that they'll strategically place in rural counties because there isn't a, a paid fire response. So um, how about for context, like what you guys have in Kansas? Okay, unified response and command in 2016 was non-existent. And, and that, was my, that was my sole biggest critique. Like that, that's, that, that's my biggest that was my biggest issue with with how that fire was managed was there was there was no overall command and control there was very little coordination between units um getting enough help fast enough was a problem and i'll admit they didn't learn all the lessons they needed to before starbuck happened a year like less than a year later i mean after anderson creek were you know a lot of people were thinking oh wow, I hope that never happens again. I hope that never happens again. That was a once in a hundred year thing. That was a once in a hundred year thing. And myself and a few others are going, no guys, no, no. That just means we're out of the woods for a little while. Look around. This will happen again. It might be five years. It might be 10 years, but we will see another mega fire like this. You know, there are a lot of doubters that said it wouldn't happen again. I was one of the few that said that it was going to. I had no idea it would be less than a year that, that we would almost double you know, the, the size of the Anderson Creek fire. Um, so I, I, I want to take this opportunity since I did say that overall command and coordination 
was a little bit lacking in 2016. And I don't want that to be any disrespect all to Barber County Fire Department because at, at the time I was really, really critical of them. But now looking back, they did some things that, they, that they'd that they never done before. They used strip torches off a highway at about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and they lit a backfire and they stopped the head fire at the highway and they held it for eight and a half hours. And that eight and a half hours probably saved, it probably cut the fire down. It probably, it could have cut the fire from, from over 700,000 to what it was because I know what's on the other side of where they stopped it. And I know where it would have gone to by the next morning when the wind started to switch. I mean, at 8 a.m. So Barber County Fire, Rick Wesley, you deserve a shout out. Like, that's it. You did a good job that day. You did, you, you and your boys did a good thing with that backfire. So they deserve that shout out. Um, so where was I? Um, I was with my buddy, Ed, and we were both trying to keep each other calm. We were setting up on a hill. Um, we were, we spent some time driving around before the sun went down, um, down south scouting around just after it crossed the state line. You know, as I had fire radios with me, um, I guess let me back up a little bit more. So I'd said all day that Tuesday, I'd kind of had a sense of dream. And I went home at five. I left the ranch at five. And at five, there, there wasn't, I didn't see any smoke. I mean, yeah, there was a little bit of haze in the sky. I didn't see a smoke column. I didn't smell anything. The fire radios had been quiet all day. And I thought five o'clock, we're close to the break point. Okay. That break point in the day where you can, you can almost feel it, where the humidity and temperature curve breaks over and starts to drop. And then your wildfire danger starts to drop dramatically. I knew that I knew the humidity wasn't going to come up that much, but it was going to come up enough to help. And the wind was going to come down and the temperature was going to come down. So wildfire, you know, so, so spreading index, I guess, is what uh, risk of spread would be, would be kind of maybe the more technical way. Um, so that risk was starting to decrease, obviously, once you reach that turning point. So I, so I checked out when I was rolling through Sun City, which is a mile away from my house. I stopped and I talked to my friend, Tim, who lived caddy corner from the firehouse. And we stopped right there on the street in front of his house. I don't think it's Main Street, but it's like the street that meets Main Street in the center of town. Like, I just stopped there and we had a 10-minute conversation about the day, the weather. Thank God we hadn't had a fire. We went home. 15 minutes later, the pagers went. They were called for mutual aid to Oklahoma. And I'm thinking, okay, Oklahoma's a long way off. They'll have some time to get it shut down. You know, they'll chase it, you know, chase around into some canyons and they can, you know, maybe they'll get it shut down. If not... Maybe they can find a defense on the state line. Well, when I got the when I got the phone call that it was within four miles of the state line and running hard, that's when that's when I jumped in the truck with my with my best buddy Ed and we went south to check out the situation. And we got down there and it had it had already blown over the highway or it already blown over the county or uh, the state line. There's a road down there. They the local fire departments, all the rural fire departments and everybody that was there with mutual aid, with assistance from some local landowners, members of our burn association, um, they almost, almost pinched it off between a green crop field and a burn that had been conducted several days prior. They came within a hundred yards of having it and they lost it there. So when I knew that they had, when I knew that they had that lost, I said, Ed, let's go back up to Estel Road. I said, why? I said, because that's the next place that they have any chance of holding this thing. I said, that's the next road north. I said, and you know what, you know what's past that? And he goes, no. 
fucking highway. Mm -hmm. Excuse my language. So by the time we got to Estill Road, we were there for a while in uh, Comanche County, which is the county um, east of, or west of me. They were they were responding in full force in Comanche County Fire. Those guys are on top of their game. Clark County Fire, you know, those guys are some of the best. And they, they I mean, they were having they were having fairly successful luck, you know, trying to pinch the flanks and trying to pinch the flanks. Um, they didn't hold Estill Road at all. There was no hope of holding Estill Road. And I saw it on a, I saw it. And when that happened, uh, Barber County was still on their way up. They were trying to regroup and they were still, they were still trying to get in back in front of it. And I heard Rick come on the radio and I said, you know, can we stop it at Estill Road? And I, I got back on the radio and I said, Rick, this is Brian. No, it's already past Estill Road. You better go to the highway and you better make a plan and you better go right now without delay because if you don't it'll be there it's going to be there at midnight and that was like an hour and 20 or 30 minutes and like i said i got to give him credit he got there and he got his boys organized and they got a drip torch and they they stopped that head fire for eight hours and that was that was the best thing they could have done so you were asking about equipment i think was what your question actually was <laughs> so um our, our our real fire equipment has has gotten a lot better in the last five years. You know, obviously there's more awareness of wildfire, and there's been you know the federal government has has blessed us with uh, some of our money back to uh, to buy better fire equipment, which uh, is kind of nice. So we 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 do have some upgraded fire equipment. Um, things have worked better at the state level. There's new there's new cooperation agreements. Um, I, I forget what it's called. But there are cooperation agreements now in place between uh, local rule of fire and Kansas Forest Service and any any large event um, since 2018 is when is when they implemented all those systems. Mm, excuse me. The, the large fires we've had since 2018 have had a much better, much more coordinated um, response, uh, much, much faster. Um, they've also started pre-positioning units um, in Oklahoma. It's so funny. Like lines on a map are so funny. Like Oklahoma does things so different. And for a long time, you know, like Oklahoma couldn't officially come help us unless they were asked a certain way, but it never mattered. I mean, if they needed our help, if, if somebody calls you go, you know, it, red flag day, 40 mile an hour wind, there's a fire in the world and your phone rings, you go. That's it you go and do whatever you can to help the people that are there. I mean, even if it's just maybe scouting and going to watch in a flank or watching a corner or going to watch a road crossing, telling people don't drive into smoke, you know, don't go be a looky loo though. <laughs> you know, if you're just going to go look, stay home. Don't get in anybody's way. People have a job to do. They're focused, stay out of their way. Um, so back to equipment, um, man, I remember some of the shady stuff that, that we all used to use back in the eighties. <laughs> Oh, wow. And, you know, the, and, and, you know, there's, there's still some people that show up at a fire with some stuff I look at and I just go, you are a backup unit for a backup unit for a backup unit. <laughs> I am not putting you on the front line. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but we have, uh, you know, a lot of us have pretty decent equipment and we're getting better every year. There's a, there's an equipment donation program that, that our burner association takes part in from Kansas Forest Service. Um, so we've gotten two uh, Stuart and Stevenson deuce and a half trucks. Like they just provide the truck. They retain ownership over it. You have to buy insurance, put the tires on it and whatever, and maintain it. And you got to put all your plumbing and your, your tanks and whatnot and your radios in it. And the most important thing 
is radios. Like that is the number one thing a prescribed fire association needs is radios, 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 lots and lots of good radios and learn how to use them and learn how to use them effectively as a team, as a, um, so I, I love that you hit on that because it just hits back on the LCES, you know, see communications. That's the big thing, you know, that, um, I, that's one of the stories I have heard from a lot of people that communications is, that is the breakdown point. A lot of times, like things could have gone so much differently if communications were better and whether that's equipment radio, whether that's actual, um, personnel agency stuff. There's times where it's like just having two units, a hundred yards down the line can make or break a day. You know, just one person being out of position, well, one, one member of your team, not knowing the plan and not knowing fully what's going on and what to expect. That can ruin your whole day. And I, and I, I imagine that probably during Creek, um, cause I, I'd heard stories from other folks in uh, Eastern Montana that, you know, cause you do have so many different responses. You've got folks that have their own type six engines that are responding. You've got co-ops, you've got counties, you got state federal agencies sometimes coming at, um, one of the, the things I'd heard about the breakdowns in communication was you'd have local resources addressing a flank or even the head somewhere, but because they didn't have the frequency that everybody else did, nobody knew they were there. And so there'd be situations where say another entity on some other part would decide, this is where we can catch it on this road. Let's do a backburn. And lo and behold, you've got X number of engines and personnel in between the main fire front, the road, and where they're doing the backburn. Um, you got you got twenty dude, you got twenty rigs and fifty guys up trying to do a backburn, mm-hmm. and then you got another twenty got you know twenty rigs and and fifty guys trying to anchor a flank that's useless if your backfire works. Mm-hmm. And they don't uh, know. I, and they don't know. You know, command and control communication, mm-hmm. and you know th- there's no easy answer. I don't think, but every, it, things have gotten so much better in that, in that realm in the last five years. And, um, you know, there's a red flag warning, not far from here today. Like we're borderline tomorrow may be a red flag. They haven't decided yet. Like we're right there. I mean, we're critical fire weather, so, you know, it's not on silent. <laughs> it's, it's, it's here. It's, it's waiting and it's getting close to that time. I mean, you know, two o'clock is, is when that, when that danger starts to rise rapidly. So, you know, with the communication aspect of it, you know, from, from a wildfire context, you know, there's, I think that there's a lot of, you know, trained professional fire managers that look down on private landowner fire practitioners as, as being untrained and unskilled. I don't have a red card. I've never been through the 102, 103 training. I don't have any desire to go through any of that crap. I've been lighting things on fire in my environment for 35 years. Do I consider myself an expert in my environment? Yes. Within my little, you know, within my little narrow realm of the Red Hills, you know, I would, I would consider myself a fire expert. Take me to California. I'll still know a lot and I'll still be able to give, give some good advice, but that's not my, that's not my context. Right. So we, we have to keep in mind that, you know, all things in contact. And the point I was making was, you know, we need fire, like federal and state fire managers, government fire managers need to do a better job of involving these local burn groups that are organized, that know how to communicate and work together. Okay. Burn managers, go find those groups, go find those people and help support them, organize them. You can, we have, we had 
offered our services as a burn group to the Kansas Forest Service as, as a mobile task force. That's a command unit, two attack trucks, and embedded tanker support. I mean, it's, it's a minimum four unit, self-contained task force. We can show up. Only, the, only one person has to talk to KFS. And they say, you're assigned to zone J, do this task. We're on it. We can do that. That, that agreement hasn't been formalized yet, and they haven't utilized our services, but there, there were a couple days last year that we were sitting on rigs ready to go. We we're waiting for a call. So there's a lot, there's cooperation, communication. That's, I think that's what's key. So lessons learned from the Anderson Creek wildfire. <laughs> this is where the good part starts, right? Um, so, you know, I watched that fire burn up my whole ranch. I stayed out with Ed all night till I think, I think we, I, I think he dropped me off around two o'clock in the morning. And that was after, after the backfire was successful and they'd stopped the width of the head fire. And all they had to do was, was keep tying flanks and keep tying flanks and, and anchor flanks. And it kind of started to dawn on me that night, like, wait a minute, in the next 12 hour in 12 hours, the wind is going to be out of the North, out of the West to Northwest at 30 to 40 miles an hour. What's going to happen when that happened? Is it possible to put enough trucks in that rough country to tie down 25 plus miles of what, what would be the right flank, the east flank, before that wind switch and turns that whole east flank into a head fire? I knew that was going to happen. I knew there was no way that they were going to tie that whole flank down. There, was, there aren't enough resources that could get to the area fast enough to be able to tie that flank down before the wind would switch and turn it into a head fire. It was basically inevitable. The only thing, the only thing they had any effect on was stopping the Northern spread. And they did a great job of that. I mean, if they hadn't, have, if they hadn't have stopped it where they would have stopped it, Domo, it would have gone another 20 to 25 miles North before the wind switched. And then when the wind switched, they would have had that much more ground to cover there. And that area North, <laughs> North of where they stopped it, there's more people that live up there. It's a little rougher, and it leads almost straight to the town of Medicine Lodge that's home to 2,000 people. And there was, a way, there was a way in for the fire. Like, there was a way in for it to get there. It didn't, partially because Barber County Fire stopped it at Tuesday night, Wednesday morning at Highway 160. That's what saved Medicine Lodge, not anything else. So talking about lessons learned, you know, a lot of the lessons learned, communication. So what were the lessons we learned ecologically on a large scale. Okay. So I've got a long history with fire and I've had some great successes in, in cleaning up invasive species with fire and, and cleaning up, you know, small areas. There have been a lot of areas that, you know, a lot of types of areas, like, you know, really steep canyons that are just totally infested with trees that we'd never been successful getting to burn under prescribed burn conditions. Well, when it's a red flag day and you got 40 miles an hour wind, watch out, buddy, because 95% of your woody mass is going to burn. And it did. And entire canyons were cleaned out. And it was just amazing. So leading up to this, we'd experienced a couple other wildfires, which I haven't even talked about. There was one in 2008. And there was one in 2014. The one in 2008 burned up the middle 55, 50 to 55% of the ranch, just right up the middle. And that was awesome. And if it hadn't have been for that, and learning how to rebuild fence after that, like ooh, 2016 would be really rough. But some of the things I saw after 2008, okay, 
it was kind of another one of those red flag fire days. It cleaned out a canyon. It cleaned out a couple canyons full of cedar trees. Well, funny thing happens when you do that out here on this ranch. You start finding a creek. And, and the longer you keep, what we've found since then is if you can go in with, with some kind of horsepower, because I can't run enough stock density of bison <laughs> to be able to trample dead cedar trees. So I've got to replicate that impact with a masticator or a mulcher. So yeah. I spent a lot of time with a skid steer mounted mulcher mulching trees. I spent 850 hours in a leased excavator with a mulcher head on it in two years. And that's all I did for two years was sit in that excavator and grind up trees. Oh, wow. <laughs> so creating habitat, restoring native habitat. Okay. Now I'm not saying cedars aren't native. They're native to the Red Hills. Histor you know, history supports that. Anecdotal history supports that 100% but they're infesting the grasslands because we have removed fire from the equation and the rate of the rate of conversion it's scary and the amount of money that is being spent on on preventative methods my friend Drac Twidwell at University of Nebraska Lincoln um, I'd be happy to hook you up with his with his contact information or make an introduction um, he's working with something called the Rangeland Analysis Platform RAP and he is studying the effects of biome conversion, fire on the landscape, and ways to stop encroachment of woody plants into the grassland biome. And I hate to say this, it kind of sound like bragging. <laughs> but there's, uh, he's, Dirac's been here several times. In fact, he was just here a couple of weeks ago uh, for our Burn Association's annual meeting. And he gave a presentation, gave a great presentation about some of the updates to RAP and the new things that they've learned since he gave his first presentation to us uh, a little over a year ago, which kind of just blew me away. So they're, they're charting, they can see the effects between, okay, let me back up. So what, what rangeland analysis platform will show you the data you can get from it. You can get a year by year progression. And some of the information's at different scales, but it's all at all at a relevant scale. Okay. Some of it's even, you know, like a maybe a two or three kilometer block, whatever, but it, it's still a relevant scale to show you long-term change over over a, on a large scale, right? You know, it's not going to give me a lot of useful information and tell me where I need to go exactly cut trees on my ranch. Okay. But the data that it does drive, okay. So it's going to show you it can, it knows the difference between, you know, woody herbaceous, sagebrush, a farm field, a corn crop and native rangeland. And it has biomass estimates now for all of these categories. Okay. So now people got to, you know, don't get hung up on biomass as, as, as you know, your benchmark to be shooting for tons of biomass per acre, because that's wrong. You know, it, it's the carbon sequestration potential of that biomass per acre that we need to think about in that context. Okay. So what the data is showing is the eastern red cedar trees in Junipers, Virginia, is basically converting the entire grasslands biome at a rapidly accelerating rate. Um, it's almost a geometric progression, you know, skateboard ramp that you wouldn't that you wouldn't want to ride a bicycle down. And but the important lesson that he's learning, okay, is they're showing that these two big wild the Anderson Creek wildfire is is the the example he likes to use when he comes down and talks to us and tells us that you know we're his best example of you know prescribed burn association leveraging a wildfire to have a core blah 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 blah. I'm sure he says the same thing when he goes to Nebraska and he talks about the Lusk Canyon uh, Rangeland Alliance because they had a similar wildfire up there that burned that burned out a lot of their members' ranches 
and that was also a wake up call for them. Like, Hey, we got this big area cleaned up now that we can defend. Okay. We have a core and then we're also looking at several of these cores in, in the red Hills. Now, let me explain what a core is. So part of dark, part of a Dirac's research, D I R A C just, just so nobody's confused Dirac. that's how he says his name. I will, I didn't give it to him. He says, uh, wow, that was a bad rabbit trying to say. Well, I forgot what, 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 how I was going to quote him. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's about ready to put a number like on the cost to the ecosystem to do nothing. So he talks about cores. Okay. I got it back on track. Okay. So one of the, one of the crucial things that Dirac has uncovered in his research is that the birds that like to eat cedar berries, they generally pass those seeds in seven minutes or less which means that's 200 yards, 200 yards from the seed source is all you got to defend. I had a light bulb moment. The first time I heard that, that means I don't have to go down and saw out every tree in the Canyon. I just have to go down and saw out the big females that have all the berries on them and saw down every tree that has berries on them. And the good news is cedar trees are very sexually dimorphic. Okay. It's like one in 10 to one in seven females to males. I mean, so the males have their choice, right? I mean, females can be picky. But that's good news for us as land managers, because that's less of those trees that we have to get rid of to reduce the seed store. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you like your cedar trees, you can keep your cedar trees, just not the female. That's a very strategic way to go about it. I mean, there's, there's a whole strategic plan. I mean, and Dirac says that, you know, we need to have, well, he didn't say this. I'm saying it for him. We need to have a holistic fire management context for biomes. Okay. The grasslands don't stop at the state line between Kansas and Texas. They don't stop at the state line between Kansas and Colorado. The grasslands should be managed as grassland. Great Plains biome should have a holistic fire management, holistic fire management context that's applicable to everybody in that Great Plains biome that we all buy into. That is, we need fire to manage our landscape. We have to use fire to reduce these invasive trees. Okay. So I want to bounce back to this, this concept of a core. Okay. And the two examples that Dirac likes to use, like I said, are Anderson Creek wildfire um, and Jip Hills prescribed burn association. And then the Les Canyon rangeland Alliance LCRA. I hope that's right. If I'm not send me some hate mail. Um, so these cores is basically a large area that you've established and you have maintained free from infestation, you've removed the seed source from. So that's a reclamation burn and then a follow-up maintenance burn. And then you can just get, or I guess a reclamation burn and then a restoration burn. And then finally you get to that maintenance burning phase. So your restoration burn, and you want that to be as big, hot and intense as possible. Cause you want to, you know, you want to get as many of those big mature trees that you're not going to have another chance to get unless you get, unless you get an Anderson Creek. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, you don't get a second chance if you do it right to go down in there and get those big ones. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got some small ones scattered up on your hills and ridge tops, man, go clip those suckers and throw them down the canyons as ladder fuel to get the big ones to go and then run a big hot fire down there. And you'll just, you'll just love it because there'll be a creek down there and all kinds of habitat. So a core area is a core that's been burned out and possibly even mechanically treated to remove all of the seed source. And once you have that core established, you can walk away from the middle of it. 
And all you have to do is defend the edges, 200 yards. Then it becomes, when you start thinking about the problem like that, when you start thinking about the grasslands biome, okay, and I'm in the, like, I'm just quoting Dirac all over the place, but he has some really great analogies about this. He says, right now, what we're doing is sending ambulances all over the place and trying to do emergency care. <laughs> and it's not effective. I mean, we're just burning through money. I think Texas and Oklahoma spent $261 million in 2019, and they accomplished nothing. Like, I mean, long-term, they didn't really do anything with that money to, to stop encroachment of Woody Brush. I had... I had no idea how brushy it was driving down through Texas, like how bad it had gotten. Like it is, it's ridiculous how bad it's gotten like straight South of me down through Texas, all the way down to, Oh, Kingsville. I forget where all we've been. Well, we went all the way to South Padre. So, I mean, from South Padre to South central Kansas, we drove that whole route and it's like, I mean, there's just trees everywhere. There shouldn't be trees. This is the great plains. This is the grasslands. And when Lewis and Clark came through here, 205 years ago or whatever it was, 215 years ago. Well, they didn't come through here, but you know, they went up around North Dakota. You know, they're talking about North Dakota, you know, driving riding through the grasslands and the grass was so tall they could tie it in a knot over their horse's back. Okay, so maybe they had really short ponies. <laughs> and maybe it was a really good year for grass. But you know, even if you're on, you know, even if you're on a short pony. <laughs> Seven, eight foot tall grass is still really impressive. And Lewis and Clark aren't the only ones we hear that from. You know, the, the, those, those accounts are repeated anecdotally in, in almost countless journals from, from trappers, from early settlers and early explorers. And then what do we do? We shot all the bike, you know, we, we, ran, we ran the indigenous people off. And when, when, <laughs> the, reason, the reason the Great Plains were settled last in America is because of the Comanche Indian. Did you know that? No. Like all the settlers... You know, the westward, original westward expansion phase, I mean, there was a reason why nobody stopped here because it was, it was territory of the Comanches, the horse lords of the plains, and they really didn't like whiteies. As long as the whiteies went west over the mountains, they didn't care. And as long as they stayed east in the trees, they didn't care. They were the horse lords of the plains. I mean, there was a big west, um, I'm getting a lot of this, and I hope I'm, and I'm hoping I'm remembering it right. This is coming out of Empire Comanche Moon, which is a fantastic book. no. Empire of the Summer Moon. Um, Empire of the Summer Moon. Yeah, great book. Wish I could remember the the guy that the author's name right now, but it escapes me. Anyway, moving on. Um, so I'm I'm in probably what would be the extreme eastern edge, maybe in the northeast corner of the Comancheria, and we couldn't fight him fairly. <laughs> you know, the cavalry couldn't fight him fairly. The uh, the Colt pistol was invented. The Dragoon pistol was invented because the Texas Rangers needed a better weapon to fight the command. Like. Blackjack wrote a letter to Colt and said, we need something that can do this, this, and this, and this. And then Colt sent him a prototype a couple months later. So that's why the revolver was invented. <laughs> um, I digress. So the planes were only really settled after we beat the Comanches or after the Comanches were, were defeated. And the Comanches were, had such a strong grip and such a strong understanding of how the plains ecosystem worked and how to navigate this country quickly and effectively. I mean, they deserved to own it. It was theirs. <laughs> they did a good, I'm not saying they did a good job. I'm not saying they were, I'm not saying that, that, you know, the Comanche necessarily were good indigenous managers. I have no evidence of, of, to support or refute that. And, you know, I don't really want to go down any rabbit trails talking about, you know, indigenous use of fire. I've seen some evidence to support it, some to refute it. 
I've seen evidence, you know, there's a natural fire return frequency of seven to 10 years in a historical context, you know, can argue about that till the cows come home. I think the moral of the story is wildfire is a fact of life in almost every context in the, in our country. And we need to be much more fire adapted, not just with our, not just with our homesteads, you know, our buildings, our, our infrastructure. We need to, we need to understand that fire is a natural part of the landscape. And sometimes we just need to let the whole dang forest burn down because that's death. That's a cycle. It's renewal. It's regeneration. You know, the strong plants will survive and, you know, old dead decaying things that are just taking up space. You need renewal and, you know, back to fire as a management tool. Okay. So fire is, I'm in more of the maintenance phase on my property. Yeah. I've got areas that I've got to worry about. You know, I don't, I don't have my good core defense real tight. I got areas I got to worry about. Hopefully I've got a two-year plan to have my core defense tight. And all I got to worry about is my fence lines after that. And then get my neighbors to go burn. Uh, man, I lost my train of thought again. Terrible about that. Terrible about that this morning. And I'm not meaning to, to interrupt you or redirect you or, or distract you, but I, I just want to say, I do love that, um, that you recognize and voice that, that change it's, it's inevitable. Um, things are always changing and that really, if things are staying the same, it's because humans have interfered and tried to preserve it in a certain, a certain way. Um, but when you look, when you study the natural world and you're looking at the natural cycles, how things work without any human interference, it's constantly changing. It's always in some stage of succession or progression. There'll be some kind of change, whether that's natural now or human human caused, but it changes and then it starts over again. And we're we're really the only ones that are like, we want to keep it in one way or the other. And um, I think that's that's one of the things I've noticed is when, when people are talking about how they're managing their property, you either have that view set that, nope, we want to stay one way, or you're willing to roll with natural processes and natural cycles and not fight the things that aren't worth fighting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's I think that's a fundamental shift in minds. You know, we have to learn to live with nature. We have to, you know, we have to change our mindset. We have to get out of this headspace of ownership, right? and get into a headspace of being privileged enough to be the steward of this of this wonderful beautiful resource that we have called earth you know that hopefully we can have this have this big massive cultural shift towards that <coughs> excuse me uh, yeah how about here here's a, a question i i totally this did distract you from the rabbit trail we were going down but um if you were to I don't even remember what the rabbit looked like right now <laughs> If you were to describe or try to define sustainability, how would you, or what does it mean to you? Sustainability means we're going to stay in the same screwed up state that we're currently in. It's not good enough. I mean, that's what it means to me. And you know, that there's, there's just levels and levels of levels of context to keep unpacking there to kind of, you know, to kind of explain that in a holistic vision. But, you know, I guess that's, that's just how I think about things. Very interesting. Um, and I'll get you back on track, I promise. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the other questions I've been asking people because some some people, how people share their wildfire stories, it kind of seems like um, there's either one camp that says this was the absolute worst thing that could have happened every way, shape and form to my land, to my business, to my family, everything. And then there's another division that says this was absolutely the best thing that ever happened. And now 
I'm changing my practices and doing X, X, and X because of this. And so like you're talking about kind of like those core areas on your ranch. Um, there was a, another rancher that I, I toured his ranch. It was north of Billings, Montana, kind of in between Billings and Roundup. And that's exactly what happened to him. He had an early spring fire on his place. Um, they had been getting out of the cattle business. They, the timber that was on their property um, was caused, the cattle were consuming the needles, which caused huge uh, abortion rates in his herd. Pine and, needle abortions. We've, we've heard about that before on episode one with Hobbs Magaray. Yes. And um, so after their fire wiped out their timber, um, he said it was the best thing that ever happened. All of a sudden they had a winter range, which they hadn't before the trees were gone. They lost that, that abortion percentage because the trees were gone and not causing that problem anymore. And it was a huge mindset shift of all of a sudden they began aggressive mechanical treatments on their, on their property. They started creating both fire breaks and kind of um, what their, one of their tactics for, cause they also incorporated prescribed burning in addition to mechanical treatment was they would take say the, the trees, the juniper, the brush, everything from those fire breaks they were creating and they'd bring it to a timbered area on the ranch and create this big pile with the whole intent that when they did prescribe burning through that area, that when that pile caught on fire, it would cause that, that ladder fuel effect and it would wipe out and punch out holes in the timber that they might've not gotten otherwise by just um, trying to do prescribed burning, burning through the understory. They achieved that, that huge, you know, punching a hole um, that they wanted to get. And so I, I think- When you can punch a hole and crown out a canyon, <laughs> oh, it's, it's terrifying to see. When it's a wildfire context, but when it's when it's in the right situation, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to just sit back. Yes. So, so more lessons learned. Did you have? Did you have more? Totally distracting me. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> oh, we're we're still on the lessons learned question. Wow, we got a bunch more to cover. <laughs> or or you we can totally divert and we can go into prescribed burning because that's another another topic that is uh, near and dear to me. I, I love prescribed burning and have traveled the United States getting to do burns all over the US and it's it's amazing to see. We'll, we'll, we may have to come back for that for another episode on another day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so lessons learned. Well, you can accomplish some wonderful things with the right fire condition. Um, the lesson that we learned was mother nature handed us an opportunity on a silver platter. She did things for us with that fire that that dad had dreamed about doing for 30 years with matches and drip torches. I mean, areas of the ranch were clean that that had never been possible or feasible to get fire in that he'd been trying for years. I didn't have any cattle. I didn't own cows at that time. I didn't have any stock. I didn't have any custom cattle on the ranch. So I didn't I didn't have that to worry about, thankfully. Um, the lessons most valuable to learn were watching the grass come back and watching a much stronger grass, grasses come back like higher succession grasses. Okay. And I think a lot of other people in the area would repeat this, that they've seen more Indian grass and more big blue stem since the wildfire. And this year I've started seeing a lot of switchgrass on my place where I've been doing ultra high density grazing, but not so much where I haven't. So that's probably another podcast maybe in itself. So what I want to talk about is grass recovery, okay, and forage production. And, you know, we're, we're talking about it in both the context of, of a wildfire and of a prescribed fire, okay? So when you time your prescribed fires, you know, there's one school of thought that says 
you burn late in the dormant season. You burn really late in the dormant season because your heavy fuel moisture is going to be low. Your fine fuel moisture is going to be low and you're not going to burn up your grass. I, I put burn up your grass in quotation marks, right? Because I think we, we kind of all agree that perennial grasslands that are fire resistant, that have evolved with fire are not necessarily damaged by fire at any time of the year. It doesn't matter what time of the year you burn your grass. If it's a native range, okay, asterisks here in the Red Hills. I don't think it matters when I burn my grass as long as I manage it appropriately afterwards, give it the appropriate amount of recovery following that energy input before I reintroduce animals back to it to impact it. Because if you don't, if you don't control the movement of the animals, they prefer those burn spots and they will continue to select them and select them and select them and overgraze them and, and not use other parts of the pasture. So that can be a tool, you know, Patch burning, that's, you know, that's probably another podcast, but uh, another podcast episode. But patch burning is a thing that fire managers can use. You know, you can burn a patch over here on this part of the ranch, you know, on, on large acreages, patch burning is used. But the issue I have with patch burning is once you commit to patch burning, you're married to it. Like you're married to it until you quit it. I mean, you don't just get to take a year off because you feel like it. I mean, you got to do it every year. And you got to keep doing it every year until you make the make the decision and switch to a system that gets away from that every year. So fire is largely, you know, like I said, fire is used basically in three contexts. For me, you have your reclamation fire, and that's getting your land back from the big, big, heavy infestation. You have your restoration fire. That's your holding the line. That's your holding the ground. And you may have to do more than one of those. And that's getting the little saplings and keeping and, and cleaning stuff up and chipping away at those edges of those steep canyons that you can't get into, can't get into without, you know, an extreme fire event or they're difficult to get into mechanically. Keep chipping away at it till it gets to the point where all you need is a chainsaw and you can go down in there and do hand-to-hand -hand combat with the cedar trees. So, you know, we talk about broader context, okay? like a coordinated strategic biome preservation plan for the Great Plains needs to look something like we need to leverage the wildfire events and fire needs to be the primary tool. And we, we need to establish core areas, establish a front line that we can defend. And once we have an area that we can defend and hold, then we can go back on the offensive. And what's the offensive look like? Well, that's more fire because that's the most effective, cost-effective tool on a per acre basis to manage land. It just has to be done appropriately. You know, I, I, there are burn contractors that just charge absolutely absurd amounts of money to go do burns per acre. That's great. I'm glad there's an industry for them. I try to keep my cost as low as possible because I'm paying out of pocket, right? I have to pay for all the costs of burning out of pocket. I have to pay for the deferred grazing out of pocket. I mean, that may not come out of pocket, but that's definitely an upper lost lost income. So it's an opportunity cost to my business for deferred grazing. So that goes under a cost of burning of what grazing I lose because I need to build up a forage stockpile to carry a fire because ladder fuels are a thing, right? You know, then there's the time involved. There's the investment in the equipment and there's the maintenance in the equipment. There's the fuel for the drip torches. There's, you know, all the thousand little details on the day of the burn. Then there's the planning, there's the preparation, there's the going out and the mowing, there's the, you know, there's the work to go prepare the road, keep get the roads in good shape so people can travel fast, you know, make sure the fire lines are well prepared and people can get around them. Get your maps prepared where everybody has a map 
things are clearly marked. Fire lines are marked. Things are marked with, you know, like I will have it. I will have some things with A. I will go A to B for things. And then other things, I will go one to 10. So if I call out, hey, West team, how close are you to point alpha? Everybody knows what I'm talking about. I don't have to say, hey, uh, hey, Bob, are you and Ethel over there by by that one old big cottonwood tree that's got the that's got that weird broken branch on it that uh, maybe has a dead cow under it? Like, no, are you at point alpha or not? You know, little things like that. Um, man, I keep getting off track. So I'm really talking about I'm trying to trying to stay on track here about uh, you know grass recovery, forage production, and kind of this you know overall strategic biome preservation plan. Got to start with fire. Got to establish some cores, make a defense, hold a line. Yeah, there's, you know, all my buddies that run mulchers in the world, you're not going out of business. Trust me, there's going to be plenty of work for you guys to do. I'm, I'm trying to build that market. <laughs> so there, there's going to be plenty of mechanical work that still needs to be done, you know, but we need to get to the point where we're spending the bulk of our money where it's doing the most good, which is on fire. Instead of trying to spend money running around in ambulances on emergency care with bulldozers because that emergency care is 10 times as costly per acre as the fire. That is an awesome point. And um, I'm glad you're, you're sharing this perspective. And so this leads me though to another question because um, like I said, I'd worked in fire, fire management and now gets outreach education kind of side of things. I can't imagine that everybody agrees with you. And I guess, what are your thoughts on how to communicate and reach those audiences that maybe not you know, maybe they see fire and to them, you are never going to convince them that it's a good thing. Or two, they see prescribed fire and they're wondering why are you burning their beautiful Kansas prairie? Or three, um, you know, any other outlying factor, I guess. What are, what are your thoughts? I don't mind being unpopular at the coffee shop and the co-op. I, I'm not afraid to do that. I'm not afraid to have an unpopular opinion and, and speak loudly about that. Um, <laughs> fire is a natural part of the environment. And, and like, we, like I was kind of getting into earlier, you know, everybody, every passenger on Starship Earth, unless you live in the desert surrounded by sand, most, or Antarctica, you know, whatever, come argue with me. You are most likely living in an area that is threatened by wildfire. You better learn how to, you better learn about it. You better learn how to deal with it and learn how to cope with it. And California's had wake up calls, multiple wake up calls over the last several years. You know how they cope with it. We'll shut off the power grid. So these power lines don't slap each other and make sparks and start fires. That'll help. Let's put everybody in the dark when it's windy as crap outside. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of people a lot of people think that that's what started the Starbucks fire in 2017 was power line slapping. I, I, 2018, there was a fire south of here called the Ray Fire in Oklahoma down. I think it started in Dewey County down my buddy Jimmy Emmons' place. And whew, I remember watching that one. I spent a lot of, I spent like two days just sitting here watching live helicopter feeds of these guys flying around this fire. And it was juniper infestation hell. It was ugly but it, oh man, it may, it sure made for some pretty footage. And uh, I don't want to make light of that because, you know, I know there are people that lost their lives and, and plenty of livestock loss and that and Starbucks, you know, yeah, they're serious events. But if we take proactive action, you know, and be fire aware, um, I think fire awareness week was last week. It's like third week, February now, I think yeah. wildfire awareness week, at least in Kansas, it is, um, you know, we got to start taking these things seriously and we got to learn how to live 
live in live in an environment that requires fire to to function and getting back to that so we talked about a reclamation fire we talked about the restoration fire so where we're at now is a maintenance fire okay and the maintenance fire phase all i'm using like my my tree problem to a large extent is under control okay we're managing that with with chainsaws and sawzalls and we'll eventually need another fire just you know clean up the outliers and in five years, maybe, maybe a little bit less. Um, it might be five years before I'm ready for it. Then again, we might do it next year because there's a big group of us that are talking about burning almost 19,000 acres together. So, you know, I, I, and that's the thing, you have to work with your neighbors and shuffle your plans around. But anyway, back to the point, which is forage production. Okay. So in Kansas, when people think about burning, mostly they think about burning in the context of burning in the Flint Hill, which is, which is an eco-region that burns approximately 2 million, 1 to 2 million acres a year of grassland. And not to take anything away from them, but, you know, they do it so often and so much, like they just drive down the county road and throw matches out the window and then go to the coffee shop and drink coffee. Like, you know, they, they don't really have to do as much active management and planning and preparation as, as a lot of us out here in the Red Hills have to do. And that's cool. You know, if, if you want to argue, come to my social media, fight me, fight me on Twitter. Don't care. <laughs> they burn in the Flint Hills. Like their burning season is starting probably now. Um, I would say if I was in the Flint Hills, I would consider burning season open as soon as the, the first day that it's dry enough to carry a fire after the rain, That's if that makes sense. So like, don't know when I'm going to release this episode. Uh, man, we're coming up on 90 minutes. So this, this might even be a special. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. I mean, I said, I said, I'd give you two hours and I'm going to give you your full two hours, ma'am. Um, I mean, not saying it hasn't been great. So the guys in the Flint Hills, they primarily burn for forage production reasons. And the timing of that is, is they want to catch like right at the end of the dormant season. They want to catch the last moisture of the dormant season before the grass wakes up. And what they're doing is they're just burning off all the shit, all the stuff they didn't use last year and letting the new growth come up because that new growth that comes up, it puts the, keeps the animals on a higher plane in nutrition. Okay. The grass is more nutrient dense. It has more protein. It has more sugars and more carbohydrates to offer. Them, okay. And a lot of times you'll start to see this in a regime with constant fire that doesn't change their management program. And they're seeing this in the Flint Hills. A lot of guys that are, you know, are paying attention are starting to see this in the Flint Hills is that this burning every year <laughs> between the 15th of March and the 15th of April and then turning out on the 1st of May for 90 days and then shipping them out and doing nothing the rest of the year, it's starting to really wreak havoc on the plant communities in their pasture. So the spring burning, it's shifting, the timing that they traditionally burn in the Flint Hills is shifting their grass production away from tall warm season grasses towards the shorter cool season grasses. And the spring burning is also encouraging the infestation of a plant called Cerecia lespedesia, which is horrible, especially if you want to burn in the spring. If you burn in the spring, it makes it mad. It spreads more. It makes the seeds more viable, okay? The good news is, is goats eat it. Goats love it. Like goats just tear that stuff down to shreds. So they're burning a lot in the spring. They're getting a lot of Cerecia. Their pastures, you know, the, I always got to think, you know, you hear about the tall grass beauty of the Flint Hills. I don't know, every time I've driven through there, I don't see anything higher than ankles. If I can see my cow's feet in the pasture, I've done something wrong, right? You know, <laughs> if you could go out there and you see the, you know, see the cow's knees, you know, 
you know, you might not, you, you don't have a lot of grass. <laughs> you know, if you go out there and you can see what they're standing on, you see the bottom of their feet, the backs of their feet, uh, buddy, you need to go find that critter some more groceries. But what I'm saying is, you know, that continued management scheme of year in, year out, burn early, double stock, it doesn't do the ecosystem any favors. The ecosystem needs change, you know, and that's a static system. It's becoming a static system. So fire, I guess, is not necessarily practiced appropriately everywhere that it's practiced widely. So there's a big product, there's a big forage production benefit that's been known for a long time. I mean, even out here in the Red Hills, we can get some really good gains on yearlings if we burn, you know, if we burn and catch the range just right. It's a little bit harder to do out here, but kind of figuring that out. So forage production was the thinking, okay? And that drove the timing. But there's there's a big shift in that because of a lot of us have started looking at summer burns. And that's due to research coming out of Oklahoma State University. Dr. John Weir, homeboy. When I grow up, I want to be like Dr. John Weir. I love that guy. Um, he's the one that's really started to push summer burning a lot. And, or I should say growing season burning. So we're not talking about burning in May or June. Well, maybe June, later June. But we're definitely talking about burning in July and into August. And even down a little bit into September. But toward the end of September, you want to kind of taper off your burning, okay? And I'm not saying that's a hard no, okay? But the timing of burning spring versus summer is, is very complicated. You know, it's a very complicated management decision. There's so many variables that go into it. It did take another podcast to unpack. But basically, you know, we've learned that you can't hurt the native prairie by burning it. You can only hurt it by grazing it improperly, okay? So a lot of these invasive woody invasive herbaceous species that we have, like I mentioned, Ceresia lespedesia, eastern red cedar, el whatever elm tree you like, you know, all, all these all these trees that we brought in, you know, like catalpas, all this crap we've brought in and let run loose and rampant in our ecosystems, a lot of it is very, very vulnerable during the growing season. Like you can get the same grass production benefits burning in the middle of July, as you will the beginning of April, and the bonus is you will kill a lot more trees. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to start burning in June, July, and August. That's not what I'm saying. But I have looked at the calendar. I've analyzed the weather patterns during dormant season burning, late spring, late, sp late winter, early spring burning. In the 40, day, 40 to 45-odd day burning window, we're lucky if we get 10 good burn days. <laughs> lucky, okay? In the 90-day window, June, July, August, Historically, there's an average of 55 to 60 days with acceptable weather to burn on. As a burn manager, I like those odds of being able to plan a burn. I like those odds a lot more of being able to plan a burn. You know, summer burns are challenging. They have their different logistical challenges. You know, we mentioned the 80-20 curve earlier. You know, you, you want to try to stay, you want to try to stay on the right side of that 80-20 curve. You know, humidity not less than 20% if your temperature's above 80. If your temperature's above, if your humidity's below 20 and your temperature's above 80, Keep your matches in your pocket that day, buddy, because things things will get wild now in a hurry. Now, I, don't, I don't care how good of a manager you are, how good of a prepper, you know, how, how well you can prepare a fire line. If you're over 80 and under 20, you're going to have spot fires. I promise you. And I, I love, this is the other thing I love about doing this is um, it's kind of sharing stories, cross collaboration, boundaries, everything. Um, like I'm thinking back even to my years in fire and that was, you know, those are our trigger points. Like we're not even talking about like prescribed burning. We're talking about wildland fire season, like depending on which part of say the Northern Rockies you were fighting fire in, we, we followed that as well. You're 80, 20, you know, you got, if it's 80 degrees, start paying attention a lot more closely. If it's dropping below 20% humidity, 
you better be monitoring things pretty closely. And then we always add the factor in of wind as well. And it was a 20 miles per hour, more or less, you know, that was your other trigger point. And like, I don't know, for anyone that's maybe listening, like to hear like what that correlates to and like what that means to fire managers and, and folks that are working on the landscape with fire. Um, I think it was, what was the year, 2007, um, on the Rocky Mountain front up here in Montana, we had a big fire um, called the Skyland Fire. It originally had started out maybe 500 acres in timber, uh, kind of in that East Glacier type area of the world. And um, that was my job. Uh, that year was my rookie year on a hotshot crew. And my job was, I was the weather girl. I would go monitor the weather every hour or every half hour, depending on conditions. And so we'd been on this fire for a few days, you know, and you usually start monitoring that weather um, with sling psychrometer and your little weather gauge at eight o'clock in the morning and you'd have, you'd record those numbers throughout the day. You'd watch the trends, you'd monitor them, write them down, turn them in division at the end of shift. Well, Skyland Fire- Just looking for my Kestrel. Yes, Kestrel. <laughs> I was just looking for my Kestrel, it was here on my desk. I see I see it now over there on the shelf. But I... <laughs> yes, the Kestrels are awesome. And, uh, but yeah, that was the thing is, we'd been on this fire for about seven days and you know, you're used to what the, the temperature and humidity was at eight o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, one morning, I am doing my measurements and the relative humidity, we're down at already 13%. And other days at eight o'clock in the morning, we were more in that 27, 30, 30%. And you're looking at the temperature and the temperature is a little bit warmer too. You know, maybe at eight o'clock in the morning, we had been around 60 something. All of a sudden, now we're already getting up to like, high 70s, low 80s. What, what's the first thing that happens day. when I read those numbers over the radio? Boss says, do it again. All right, do it again. Got the same numbers. <laughs> it's like, use a different different sling psychrometer. Get the Kestrel, like, do it again. Okay. Give me a result that I like. <laughs> and we're getting these same numbers and all of a sudden everything stops. Fire crew, stop, stop digging lines, stop, stop. There's a meeting of the mines. You don't hear much. And then all of a sudden, like, okay, everybody needs to pull back off the line. What ends up happening that day? Skyland Fire goes from 500 acres to 5,000. And that was that first trigger point was what are we seeing? And, and that was, you know, those numbers. And that's why they're, they're important. And so I guess I just wanted to share that in case anyone's listening. Like, what are you talking about? 80, 20? Like, what, is, what does this mean? Why does anyone care? That's why we care is because it's that it's that first precursor on the ground that you're seeing things and they're changing quickly. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, some people like to get hung up on dew point. I don't want to mm -hmm. get hung up on dew point. I want to get hung up, like, give me the raw number because that means a lot more to me than telling me, well, the dew point is 57 degrees. I don't understand that. My brain doesn't parse that. Maybe yours does. Maybe some other people's do. You tell me the humidity is 57% and is going to be 60, 61% at 8 PM. Okay. I know what that means. You know, I can understand that as a fireman. Yes. So um. we're, we're still talking about fire in the context of, of forage production. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is something that that's really important for me to say. Okay. Now I mentioned when we started that, you know, I've been trained in holistic management, big fan of Alan Savory. Only thing I disagree with Alan Savory on is the use of fire. I, I agree with him that it's practiced too much but he does not agree that it's a critical management tool to restore grasslands. He, think, he thinks it can all be done with animal. Like I've seen the math. There's no way we can breed the cattle and the bison required to be able to trample all the cedar trees out of existence. I'm sorry, Mr. Savory. 
I have immense respect for you. It's not going to happen. We need our fire. So fire in a holistic management context, as far as applicable to a grazing manager in my use there, I'm using fire in a sense that I'm leaving too much forage behind. Okay. And that matter builds up over time. And when it reaches a point that it becomes decadent and over lignified, nothing will touch it. And then it starts to oxidize and become, and you'll see this if you, if you understand how to look at grass and you start looking down into the tall grass at that understory. And if you can see grayish, blackish kind of color, that's very unhealthy grass. That's grass that has lacked animal impact for too long. You either need to graze the crap out of it at ultra high density, or you need to go light it on fire and reset that grass plant back to a higher productive state. So does, does that explain why I use fire? Like all of my uses of fire. So I'm, I'm basically, I'm using fire to replace the lack of stock density on a two for, for two reasons. Okay. Lack of stock density, because I can't use all the forage that I can grow effectively. And I don't think as a manager, you should try to use all the forage that you grow. You should always leave a little bit on the table, <laughs> you know, just in case something bad happens. Um, but I'm not, I, I can't quite get my stocking rate to the point that I want. So we have to replicate some of that herd effect with fire. And, you know, there's still some of that, some of that restoration and maintenance phase that I have to do with my cedar problem. So there, there's two management contexts that I use fire. And I think that um, all of, all of the burning that I'm going to do on my property, I'm, I'm doing it all in this. I'm not doing any more spring burn. I like, I like summer burning easier. It's easier to manage. I mean, it's, it's not as easier physically for the crew. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot harder physically for the crew because, you know, it's generally hotter. So everybody's on a side-by-side, -side, everybody's on a four-wheeler. And if there's enough people, I have even gone as far as to appoint a water boy. I mean, I say that I didn't give them that title, but that's what they did. They drove around in a side-by-side -side with a cooler of water. And that's all they did is bounce from one, you know, one fire team at the head of one flank to the other one, and then check in with a security brief back and forth. All they did was deliver water all day and make sure everybody stayed hydrated. So, ah, uh, wow. I don't know. Have we left a lot on, have we left much on the table, Domo? <laughs> uh, well, I can always come up with more and more questions. I mean, I seriously, like I, I spent hours like riding around people's ranches talking about, about stuff with, uh, I just love, I love hearing all of it. And, uh, well, I'd love to, I'd love to have you, I'd love to have you come down sometime and tour <laughs> you around and, and show you some of the other things. Um, you know, after the 2008 fire, there was another fire not far away um, that happened several months after that 2008 fire. And one of the big wake up calls in 2016 was after Anderson Creek affected the, I kind of wanted to go around and get a preview. Like what's 10 years, what, what does this look like in eight or 10 years if I don't do anything? And I saw those results and I said, nope. Nope, my place ain't gonna look like that. And then six months later, I took delivery of that Komatsu for two years. I learned how to run an excavator and make trees turn into chips, and had a lot of fun doing it. And um, you know, some of those places where there was so much of that of that biomass, that woody biomass, like I I was surprised the areas where there were still live trees that I ground up and mulched them and left the mulch. There's not much growing there. The places where there were dead trees, as long as I didn't leave the mulch too deep, some of the best stuff I got in there because I fed the soil. I fed the soil with carbon, with wood. I fed the soil with carbon, with, with ash and, and burn up cedar trees. 
you know, and then, then going through there with the machine was a disturbance, right? And those, you know, all that wood flying around, hitting the ground, all different shapes and sizes, all that was just massive disturbance, you know? I can't hire a herd of a million mastodons to come through my ranch and blast down these canes and flatten all their shit. Like, that's not a thing right now. I mean, I wish that was a business that, you know, I wish that was a contract business model you go hire, like, you know, mammoth demolition or something. We show up with our extinct creatures that we've cloned in a lab and we run them around your ranch and trample shit into the ground. Why is that not a thing? You know, Elon <laughs> Musk wants to go to Mars and he can build starships like that. That project would be pocket change. For Don't even get me started on Bill Gates and how much money that, that guy wasted on his carbon credits. You know, he paid between six and $1,200 a ton for his carbon credits. I can't wrap my brain around that. That's like they're, they're selling on a European market right now for $48. And I think that that's, I think that's vastly undervalued. But then the kicker is they're like offering 16 or 20 to ton, a ton for producers of sequester carbon. And I'm thinking Bill Gates will pay 1200 bucks a ton. I'm not taking 20. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think about carbon right now, but the, I might change. And you know, well, people want that. Okay. So let's, we're talking about fire carbon. Okay. So there might be an objection because of carbon cycling. Well, you're burning, you're creating a lot of carbon. You're creating a lot of pollution. You're putting suit in the air. It's all natural. It goes away. It's not like it's a burning stack of tires. It's not like it's, it's not like it's smoke out of a power plant that you can't see that contains unseen pollutants that do not disperse naturally in there. Like everything that the grass fire puts off or even, you know, woodland fire, all those products are cycled back into nature, back into the atmosphere, back into the soil, back into other plants that all cycles. That's not pollution. Okay. It's regeneration. You know, people might say, well, you want to burn up, well, Red Hills Rancher, you want to burn up all the trees and grow grass well the trees sequester carbon well what if i told you that perennial grassland can sequester far more carbon than any tree that we could possibly grow on it and the fun part is soil carbon storage is a permanent solution right we're putting it in the soil we're storing it in the soil okay when you're storing carbon as a tree that is stored above ground and that carbon is ultimately susceptible to rot and further cycling and it returns back to the earth. The only carbon that we can store successfully is in our soil. Like since we're on a carbon kick, the numbers I quoted earlier about Bill Gates and the price of carbon, it came from an article I posted this morning. It was out on Bloomberg. So if you followed Red Hills Rancher, you probably saw that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, um, just the prices he was willing to pay were ridiculous. And the, the projects they were talking about was, so there was this geothermal power plant in Iceland, okay? And they wanted to offset their carbon emissions because they're not 100% green or sustainable. Even though they're a geothermal power plant, they have to have a natural gas power plant on site so they can bootstrap, so they can start up, okay? So they decided they were going to build their own carbon capture plant that was going to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and inject it down into the rocks where it would eventually turn into a rock or, or like inject it at such a high pressure as a liquid into a rock formation that it became rock. I didn't really understand it. It was... It was a five paragraph article on Bloomberg and the numbers were a lot more interesting to me. So whatever, whatever this magic technology is that they're using to try to sequester carbon. Okay. They say that their costs, they built this plant because it was cheaper for them to build and operate their own carbon sequestration plant than it was for them to buy credits on the European market. Okay. Credits on the European market are quoted at $48 and this company, they claim that their costs 
to sequester their own carbon was $25 a ton. And they were kind of bragging about that. Like the paragraph before that was Bill Gates saying like, quote, the company that he, he buys his from in bulk, because that's what billionaires do. I guess you buy carbon credits in bulk because you fly, because you have a 66,000 square foot private home and you fly around the world in a jet that uses over 500 gallons of fuel an hour. And you go around the world in your jet to get on television and lecture us about eating fake meat and how we need to reduce our environmental impacts. If Bill Gates wants to pay between six and $1,200 a ton for his carbon credits, good for him. That's great. But he needs to stop telling us how we need to manage our lives, how we should eat, and how we should think. I, I, I'm kind of upset about that, if you will. <laughs> well, obviously, you got real fired up. So I, <laughs> I, I was just going to say, um, wrapping it way far back into our, our conversation earlier, um, your prescribed fire burn association in Kansas. And then you were talking later on about managing uh, land and fire on a kind of a biome type idea across, you know, all of, all of your area. I think, I totally think that's doable. And I could see a beautiful, if it isn't already happening, a beautiful partnership between either Kansas Forestry and the Prescribed Burn Association and any other kind of entity. I know kind of uh, the TNC, they, they use board with a lot of stuff like that as well. And I could totally see it it happening and being beautiful. And I know here in Montana, um, I'm involved with our um, Montana Fire Fire Adapted Communities Learning Network. And we're always sharing ideas uh, across the state because I mean, Montana, we're so big and we're so diverse. Like I said, that Western side is totally different than our Eastern side here. And so challenges on the West side might not always register on this side and, and vice versa. And I know one of the things that all of us involved, because I mean, we've got a, an interesting group. It's it's diverse participants. We've got extension, we've got the state, we've got private uh, land conservation groups. We've got um, private groups working in kind of, you know, more urban interface type areas, some more rural, some more populated and it's just super diverse. And, you know, um, I would love to see personally, like something like a prescribed fire Burn Association here in Montana, or even like I know in uh, Oregon and Idaho, they've got the Rangeland Fire Protection Associations that are kind of a little more diverse. And I think something like that, a model here would work great in Montana. And I absolutely uh, name dropped you to the girl that coordinates like tours and stuff. Cause I was like, you know, I think if there's a shot of us getting something like this going in Montana, you know, we should bring in folks from other states who have done it and are involved with it. And um, certainly I'm available for consulting. I, that, yeah, I totally told them <laughs> make it happen. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, like you were talking about um, even going back to the patch burning versus say landscape scale, like get all the little patches together. Cause in Eastern Montana, the reality is, you know, it's fairly common in the springtime, you're gonna see ditches burning, you're gonna see fields burning. Private landowners do it. Whether you have your burn permit or not, people do it. Um, landscape scale, you know, the, the federal agencies, they do it. But sometimes not everybody does it together really well. And I think if everybody could bring together under one of those associations or even something of, of the sort, big, beautiful things could happen. And it would be way less daunting to do it with a bunch of partners involved versus everybody going on their own, trying to figure it out. Um, I, 
I agree with everything you said. It's just <laughs> going to take it's just going to take time to build that critical mass and to and to gain the momentum. You know, it, it's it's after Anderson Creek, you'd think that they would learn their lesson with about coordination and communication on fire response, would have maybe changed some of their systems before the next bad fires. But they didn't. I mean, they put in a couple stopgap measures that you know, you kind of see that, okay, well, that's just a Band-Aid that isn't going to do much. And they said, well, we're going to keep working on it. Well, then, you know, we had Starbucks fire and we got another hard lesson in how to work together with other departments, you know, across state lines with other help. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, they, they <clears throat> come leads and bounds since then, you know, with not just training of, of rural departments, but also with communication between departments and, and mutual aid response and, and getting, you know, being able to get high level assets, like not just mutual aid assets, but get the high level command and the control assets, you know, with major tanker support and a lot of organization that can come down to relieve the locals, you know, the locals, the locals got to, you know, they're the first ones to the fight, obviously, and they're the ones that know it and it's, and they're going to wear out fast. So getting Getting reinforcements to the scene faster is, you know, obviously a better thing, but getting off track. And I know we are running, we are kind of running short on time. What we're talking about is, you know, is, is a, is a strategic biome preservation plan and, and getting on board, you know, how do we communicate with the stakeholders? How do you get all the stakeholders involved? You know, there's a lot, you know, and there's a lot of NGOs. There's a lot of municipalities. There's a lot of private landowners, you know, all up and down the Great Plains. It's got to be a coordinated effort and it's just going to take time, take time to spread the word and build the momentum. And between now and then we leverage wildfire events and we build cores, we build core defense to stop the grasslands from converting to close canopy juniper, juniper forests. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, Brian, so much for taking the time to talk with me and share your stories and, and be involved with our little project here we're trying to do in Montana and who knows, someday we'll maybe read your story and your experiences and then maybe they'll they'll do beautiful things here in Montana and help everyone out. Great. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. And uh, with that, I, I just want to say, Delmo, it's been an absolute pleasure visiting with you today about fire and management. I, uh, I know I said I'd give you two hours and we ran all of that and uh, maybe, maybe almost a little more. And I think we're definitely going to have to have you back soon uh, to talk more about fire and management and when it's appropriate. So if you're not already following the podcast, you can check us out on all major platforms. We're on Apple, Google, Apple and Google and Breaker. Uh, we're hosted on Anchor FM. That means you can listen to us on Spotify. You can always say, Alexa, listen to Ranching Reboot on Spotify. You can follow us on social media. You can follow me, Ranching Red Hills Rancher. I'm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And you can also follow me on TikTok. Um, you follow Red Ranching Reboot on Facebook for more updates. And with that, uh, that was my first attempt at an outro live, and I'm just going to go ahead and roll with it. So that's the show, guys. Thanks for joining us. Yeah.